Welcome to the Unafraid Podcast on the OKC First Podcast Network. My name is Zach Lucero. I'm the youth and creative pastor here at OKC First. Sitting next to me, we're moving out of lawn season, so I think he's going into dad bod hibernation. He's the best. He's our senior pastor, John Mendorf. How are we doing? I'm doing well. The yardist. The yardist. I try to get my children to refer to me as the yardist. Yes. Uh, I send my kids pictures of the yard when I'm freshly when it's freshly cut. What do you do in the off season? Um, fold clothes mostly. Like um, and I, there's a, there's an artistry to that too. I'll probably yeah. start doing that too, but I'm not sure. Is there a clever name for that? There's not yet. There's not. Uh, but I, it's please send your suggestions <laughs> in to somewhere. Info. <laughs> <laughs> at okay. Getting Averilla all of those. Aaron yes. Will love it. <laughs> so don't tell them why. <laughs> Oh, man. Uh, John, I, I learned uh, off pod just a few minutes ago that right. you don't know about Noodle, the pug. No. You don't I know have, about Noodle. Nope, not until so today. You, so you don't know if you're having a Bones Day or a no Bones Day. No. Am I'm I, uncomfortable what, already. What's the, what is the equivalent, you know, like there's mansplaining, but right. what is it like when I explain a concept that only young people understand? Is this like um, a, is this like one of those high pitched noises that only young people can hear? <laughs> can we call it Juan splaining? Juan splaining. <laughs> <laughs> is that is that that may have been insensitive? That was we good. Call no, Juan splaining. I like John splaining. John splaining or oh, Juan splaining. I like Juan splaining. Juan splaining. Juan, because you do call your, you do refer to yourself as Juanito. Yeah, sometimes. I do. So well, Juan splaining. Juan splaining. Uh, so uh, there is this pug on TikTok. John, do you know what TikTok is? I do know what TikTok okay, is. Okay, that's good. Yeah, it's uh, clock. Tic- tic- <laughs> God. It's very close. Very close <laughs> no, to a clock. I do know what TikTok um, is. Yeah. People do stuff with time on it. Uh, yeah. But it's on TikTok. Uh, it's this guy who owns a 13-year-old pug named Noodle. Uh, and every day he gets up and he walks over to Noodle's bed and he picks up Noodle by his front legs and says, okay, Noodle, are we going to have a Bones Day or a No Bones Day? And so he'll set Noodle down. And if he stands up on his front legs, then we're going to have a Bones Day. And if he falls over, we're having a No Bones Day. And a No Bones Day is like, a treat yourself day, like self-care, like, you know what? Take today. Go eat Taco Bell. It doesn't matter. Calories don't matter. I did that today. I'm having wow. a no bones day today. I had Taco Bell. Okay. Uh, watch a movie. Binge it. Who cares? Wow. No bones day. Uh, and then a bones day would be, you know, like you can, you can take the day. Like you can, you can do this. Like go accomplish your dreams. A bones day. Noodles, no bones day. And the old Testament, I think might've been called Sabbath. Is that right? I think so. Um, <laughs> Very close, but yeah, I mean, self-care, Sabbath, noodle. <laughs> Do you know what noodles, no bones day in Hebrew actually is, the uh, word? No. Do you have the word for No, it? I don't either. I was just oh. hoping you would. <laughs> Noodle? <laughs> I don't I, Is that like a Hebrew accent? I don't, I don't know. I don't speak Hebrew. <laughs> I, know, I don't either. I know little Hebrew or Greek or any of it. If you do, would you please send your uh, words into info? Dr. Tashton, if you're listening, can you tell us the Greek word for noodle? <laughs> Uh, Dr. Bratcher might know the Hebrew word for noodle, which m- there may not be one. Because I don't know. Because if did they, they have had noodles, noodles back then? In, did they have pugs back then? In, wow, that's an interesting question. How do we know? Do we know for sure if they had pugs back then? That's true because we created pugs in a laboratory, didn't we? We might have. I do say to my dogs often, uh, whenever I uh, whenever I hug Chimichanga, 
Um, that's a weird sentence. If you don't know that my dog's name is Chimichanga, my okay. dog's name is Chimichanga. All and right. I hug her and I say, "Hugs, not pugs." <laughs> <laughs> and somewhere in the world, my Ooh. wife has actually ran through a wall and out into traffic <laughs> and rolled her eyes up into her head, concussed oh, she, herself. Oh, she's leaving. Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a bummer. Oops. Well, uh, John, we we sat with a couple of unexpected guests today. Yeah. Um, people who are in town. We had another podcast recording scheduled for today that got pushed to next week, but how serendipitous. We had some pretty cool dudes sitting in oh, here today. Man. Why don't you tell us about who our guests were? So Jim Koppel and his wife, Colleen, are in town. And Jim and Colleen have helped us over the years to try to get certain projects off the ground, like uh, the Luca Foundation, like... Um, our neighborhood empowered and have also reached out to try to help us as a church because of the kinds of things that we're involved in. They they like what we're trying to do. And so they try to resource us as we do what we're trying to do. Um, Johnny Mack is a guy who uh, lives in, in Atlanta, Georgia, and has operated the Martin Luther King Center there for a long time. His interest is in uh, community involvement, community development, the development of the community's capacity to speak into its own life. And so these two have were, were introduced to one another, the Copples and Johnny Mack were introduced to one another in the aftermath of the George Floyd situation, with the hope being that the two of them could get together and and help the country begin a conversation about policing, about community policing, about how we can uh, strengthen the bonds between the police department and the communities that they protect and serve. And so they have been looking for different parts of the country to use as pilot sites. And there are across the country 14 pilot sites for this conversation to kind of germinate and take place. Amongst those 14, there are six that are sort of the main pilot sites. And because of, of some things that we've been able to do here along the lines of breaking bread, some of the things that we've been able to do here with the Justice Circle and also OKC First, they selected Oklahoma City as one of their six pilot sites. And so they are here today to try to um, discern what it is that, that makes this pilot site work, because it is working right now, uh, with an eye toward the future to see if we might make some of the um, some of this organ organic organization a little bit more permanent and put some edifice to it so that we can kind of build and lock into place this capacity to sit and listen to one another and, and have um, generative conversations about how we can go about this development piece uh, in a better, more humane, uh, equitable sort of way as we move into the future. Boy, that was a long answer. Sorry. That was a lot. But with that, Jim Koppel and Johnny Mack. We are here with Jim Koppel and Johnny Mack, who are here as advocates for the Act Now Community Policing Initiative, which is a bipartisan effort to develop uh, the bond between uh, the community and those charged to protect and serve. How are you guys doing? Doing great. Fantastic. Thank you. That's Thank awesome. You. And just to start, just so our listeners kind of know who you are, uh, we'll start with Jim. 
Uh, tell us your title and uh, what occupies your time during the day. Well, I uh, run a consulting firm uh, called Strategic Applications International, and I'm a co-founder of Act Now. Um, I've been working in police reform for about 15 years and uh, community organizing for about 30 years. So wow. we work internationally as well as here in the States. That's awesome. And I as well am associated with Act Now, and um, I guess you would call me the associate director of, of, of this program. I've been in the community building and development field for several decades, which falls directly in line with the exciting Agnow program. Yeah. Okay, well, let's just jump right in. Can you guys tell us what ActNow is? And I don't know which is the one that we need to explain first, the People's Commission or ActNow? Well, probably ActNow okay. in terms of the umbrella uh, okay. initiative. Um, we were organized or started organizing after the murder of George Floyd. And um, I've been working in police reform. I facilitated President Obama's task force on 21st century policing, as well as the National Council on Criminal Justice, National Priorities on Criminal Justice Reform, plus a number of other groups. And so uh, John Bridgeland and Tim Shriver, John Bridgeland had served as a chief domestic policy advisor for President Bush. And Tim Shriver is the nephew of President Kennedy and the son of Sergeant and Eunice Shriver. And uh, they were trying to figure out what to do. They actually called Johnny, who had been the director of the Martin Luther King Center. And uh, he and Martin Luther King III were thinking about what could we do, what kind of response could we give. And uh, we'd been in conversation uh, with uh, uh, Bridgeland and Shriver, and uh, they'd reached out to me and said, what, what needs to be done in light of some of the police reform efforts? And so we were kind of on parallel tracks. And um, I said, to me, the most important thing is to start listening to people who are not normally invited to the table. Um, there have been actually 156 task forces, councils, or working groups since the death of Eric Garner in 2014. Oh, wow. And uh, Across the country? Across the country. Yeah. And we're still shooting black people. And um, I said, uh, a lot of the people who have who experienced this in terms of relationship with policing uh, need to be listened to. And so we wanted to go to grassroots community folk, uh, not necessarily the normal organizations that get invited to the table, but people who are impacted uh, by policing in their community or other racial disparities uh, within their community. The other group that we wanted to talk to are line officers, rank-and-file yeah. officers, yeah. who are often ignored in that process. And uh, we set up, um, we identified 14 communities. Oklahoma City is one of those communities. In fact, it's actually the first community we reached out to okay. um, on with ACT Now. And the uh, 14 communities, The six we identified six pilot sites uh, to really get on the ground and kind of figure out the best way to do this to get communities engaged. Johnny came up with the idea of the People's Commissions, uh, where we really get these uh, these groups organized in, in an informal way, but yet create a bridge with formal leadership uh, to begin to talk through their ideas. Beautiful. So we're funded, very diverse funding base, uh, Walmart. It's one of our main funders, Stand Together, uh, Open Society, as well as the um, uh, Joyce Foundation. And uh, we have a couple of other foundations about to come on as well. Yeah, so it's it's beyond, by, it's a sort of omnipartisan 
I mean, yeah. it's beyond wow. bipartisan, like all the partisans yeah. are yes. together. You just so. create a new term? Yeah, nice. omnipartisan. Well, That's when you look at our our communities, the 14 communities are very diverse. We have urban communities like Oklahoma City, Nashville, Chicago. Yeah. Uh, rural communities, Martin County, Kentucky, which is where Lyndon Johnson launched the War on Poverty in 1964. And then plus a number of tribal communities, including yeah. Pine Ridge, Wind River, uh, working particularly with the uh, Native American populations in those yeah. areas. And I want to hear about the People's Commission, um, but I'm curious why why do you believe that Oklahoma City is strategic as as opposed to all the different communities in in the United States? Why is OKC strategic? Well, interestingly enough, I mean, before the death of George Floyd, John, you and I had conversations. We helped organize the and supported you in the Breaking Bread yeah. Initiative, which yeah. we did in March of 2020, mm-hmm. and um, the thing that really struck me about that event, well, if I could just back up and put in context, we were doing a, a Breaking Bread initiative in Sacramento, and Governor Beasley out of South Carolina, mm-hmm. who now heads up the World Food Program, uh, he came up with this idea when he was governor of South Carolina. He realized he attended a white church across the street from a black church, but he knew nobody in that church. Yeah. And um, so he proposed doing a meal together. And... Um, a guy named Joe Ritchie, who is a, a developer and an entrepreneur, uh, said, let's replicate this. So they reached out to me because they knew of my work with policing. And uh, I thought it was the stupidest idea I've ever heard. <laughs> that is, how do you bring black people and white people together over a meal and you think you're going to solve a problem? Yeah. And um, I actually was very cynical uh, then I was working in Baltimore, and I asked an African-American woman from the neighborhood, I said, what would you say people from your church got together with some people from a white church and just had a conversation over a meal? And she's, that's a great idea. <laughs> went, oh, okay. <laughs> and so we started that, and uh, Oklahoma City was actually our first major site. And I was stunned at the conversation. I walked around the tables listening to white and black people talking about certain issues. And one of the visual images uh, that I wish I had captured was this older African-American lady holding hands with a young black attorney, I believe. And they were talking so personally about their differences and made a commitment to stay in communication. And what amazed me about Oklahoma City was – I mean, I think that was March 12th. Or, the the day the world ended. Yeah, the day the world ended. Yeah. I got on a plane the next morning, and that was the last plane I was on for over a year. And you guys kept going through Zoom calls and through other other ways. You just And you're helping to drive. That that was a platform. And so we've done these people, uh, these um, uh, breaking bread in our other sites. Um, and uh, we're seeing great dialogue take place. And uh, we we think it was an important piece. That was the foundation uh, that drove it here in Oklahoma City. And uh, you continue on. We've done two or three more yeah. uh, Breaking Bread events. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, and they've been great. And I do think there's a secret sauce in there somewhere. I, I, by the way, that, that picture you want, this is the man that took it. And I think we can That's get right. that for you. Oh, I'd I was wondering if that was yeah. the same, same yeah. couple of people. Yeah. yeah. So I think we can get that for I you. Would yeah. love in fact, to get that. Zach's been to all of them and has, has – kind of been the 
would you almost like the the narrator in a pictorial sort of way of yeah, the whole photographer thing. would be the word yeah. oh that's an interesting <laughs> word <laughs> people usually call me that yeah, yeah. It's right. a couple of new words photographer yeah. and interesting <laughs> wow Just making everything hard that's great <laughs> uh johnny mac yeah. so glad to, to meet you i've read your work we we have circulated your white paper yeah. paper here about the people's commission mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. really all around the city mm-hmm. uh, as you heard today at lunch yes uh, yes would like for you to talk about the People's Commission and how it factors in sure. to the other ideas we've talked about today. Well, John, it's it's a real pleasure to do that. And maybe the way to talk about it is to frame where the idea came from. We launched um, from the Martin Luther King Center um, a program focused on community economic development. Uh, Mrs. Coretta Scott King and some others at that time we're interested in seeing how Dr. King's logic of nonviolence could be infused in a community community economic development framework. Mm-hmm. And so we created this organization that I ran for a little less than a decade. Following that, I worked a number of years with Martin King III. And out of that experience of running a community economic development program, we organized a poverty tour. And we visited somewhere between 40 and 45, I don't remember the exact number, communities. Um, and those communities in that visit very much replicates or, or was a precursor for what we're doing with ACT Now. That is, we went to Native American reservations, the Gulf Coast, the urban core, um, you know, rural communities, talking to people about their own lived experience, where they are. We would organize... Um, what we're now calling listening citizens. In fact, this was a looking, listening, and learning tour. We did a national report. Uh, we held a national conference, and et cetera. But one of the things we learned out of both of those experiences is that there's a disconnect between civil society and the other two pillars of the social framework. The, the other two pillars are, of course, government and the private sector business. Yeah. Civil society is an integral part of a level table of what um, societies can be. So the idea of reimagining community, a moniker that's really important to the the ACT Now program, is really what we learned out of the experience of that 40, 45 uh, community tour. It is bringing people from the bottom up. Yeah. Um, any commission, in fact, any social gathering with rules and regulations work because the people decide that they will work. If the people refuse their cooperation, this is classic, uh, you know, direct action, you know, uh, you know, notions. If people decide that they want to cooperate, then you can have a civil and just society. It's when you exclude the people, you deny the people their voice and the, and the opportunity to be part of the process that you have the kinds of conflicts that we're seeing in communities, not only throughout the country, but around the world. Yeah, yeah. And what we didn't do is codify this notion of people's commissions in that experience. And so when I got the call from John Bridgeland, Jim Shriver, Martin and I were talking about a similar project, and they introduced me to Jim. And one thing became clear is that we could use this experience of bringing people together in communities call it a people's commission, and give them, not give them, uh, help create the framework 
for them to take charge of their lives and the life of their communities. Yeah. And that's really what people commissions are about. I've probably talked too long, but let me give you one more piece. Oh, no, sure. Okay. And that Great. is networking. You know, the people means all the people. And while our experiences and life chances may differ from one individual to the next, from one group to the next, from one community to the next, we're all in this together. Dr. King called that the world house. We're living in this great house, and we must learn to live together as brothers and sisters, or we'll perish as fools, King said. Right. And that's what this whole idea of acting now is about. It's people working together. So we'll build networks here in, uh, or tap into the existing networks here in, um, in Oklahoma City, and then connect the Oklahoma City network to the Nashville network or to the Washtenaw County network yeah. or to the network in New York or Miami and Oakland, California, et cetera, and build this groundswell of people who, again, want to take charge of their lives and the lives of their community and don't need the permission of anyone else to do it. Yeah. It's beautiful. Okay, so uh, it may be incidental, but what I what struck me as I read through the white paper, and as I have heard you talk about it both online and now in person, there is something here that reminds me, uh, like DNA wise, of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa in the fall of apartheid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like I will never forget watching. I watched a lot of those those videos of Bishop Tutu listening as people. And he, he really had a, a group of people who were there, and it was a pretty broad spectrum mm-hmm. of people who were there to listen to the heartache and the complaint. And so I'm, my question for you is, first of all, does that, do we share, does this effort share some DNA with that effort? Mm-hmm. And second, to what extent does the, the category of complaint or what we Christians would call lament, mm-hmm. to what extent does that play a role in this very important conversation? There are a number of ways to answer the question, of course, John. Um, The South Africa experience and truth and reconciliation surely is an important experience. And there are different ways to think about how successful or not that, that situation was. What is important is the idea of listening and learning. Right. Um, You can never go wrong when two people can sit down, look, look each other eye to eye and express their feelings um, you multiply that across communities, um, you create the environment and the opportunity for understanding, um, to gather information, to educate uh, oneself, not only about one's own situation, but about the opponent's situation. Yeah. That's classic conflict resolution as yeah. taught by Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah. And so uh, in that regard, the listening and learning component of people's commissions is directly tied to um, the um, truth and reconciliation um, process that you spoke of in South Africa. Yeah, the other question was, is complaint somehow embedded in here, like the the capacity for the system to listen to lament? Sure. Is that crucial to this process? I'm not sure I would call it complaint. Okay. Although, you know, you know, Words are important, yeah. But expressing one's own hopes, expectations, and aspirations, and those barriers that prevent you know uh, individuals from realizing their full potential is something that is crucial in us in in the social fabric in the social setting. 
um, that's what democracy is all about. Yeah. It's, it's expressing uh, oneself and then participating in the process of deciding. In fact, um, you, know, um, you know, deliberating, deciding, and acting are fundamental tenets of the People's Commission. Yeah. And that's what I think we're, you know, when we talk about lamentations or, you know, lamenting one's feelings, you know, the, 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 it's, it's an important part of the process, but it's not all the process. Sure. And I think it also goes to authenticity. I think more than any other time, at least in my life experience, I think authenticity is, is something being sought for and worked toward. Yep. And I think for a community to come together, regardless of what the issue is, uh, there will be a, a component of lament. Yeah. Uh, and that is not necessarily a downer. <laughs> it yeah. is simply helping to analyze the issue, some remorse, some regret, some forgiveness, some reconciliation yeah. involved in that process. And to be able to talk that through and to understand in a dialogue between a chief of police or a mayor or the head of a housing authority and somebody who feels like the system is working against them, that conversation is a part of the healing that takes place. And I think the people's commissions are going to be a great vehicle for that. Yeah. And it, and it seems to me that it, the people's commission and, and, and what I have seen in the act now, the working out of the act now idea, it allows for that complaint or that lament to go both ways. Yes, mm -hmm. absolutely. In fact, that's a critical component. Yeah. Uh, oftentimes people in positions of power, especially elected positions of power are defensive they feel like they can't articulate, I've, I've really blown it here, or I, I, I've messed up. But when you get a leader who looks at you in the eye and go, you know, we blew this, <laughs> or we can do better, and uh, we can do better with you, uh, as opposed to doing things to or for people, yeah. but coming alongside, and really practicing reconciliation and empathy uh, in that process is, I think, a critical component. That definitely requires trust, for sure. Yeah. yeah. That yeah. we just don't have right now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if, if, yeah, as I have and as we have as a church gotten involved in, in the larger, broader category of criminal justice reform, one of, we've learned a lot of lessons. One of them is the lines of communication need to be opened wider and more often. <laughs> and if they were open wider and more often, we could probably circumnavigate around some of the things that are, are inevitably going to trip us up these days. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Do you guys have, I know we're still fairly new to this whole process actually, but I'm curious if you have good stories that are examples of how it's worked beautifully, but I'm also interested in the story of how it has just failed miserably. Um, like where has it worked well and where is it broken down and when it's broken down, why is it broken down? I think some of the, some of the reform efforts, uh, Camden, New Jersey is held up as a kind of a, uh, a shining example of what happens when a police leadership comes in and goes, we're doing this all wrong. we got to figure this out. And uh, completely dismantled the police department and rebuilt it from scratch. And hmm. including terminating all the officers, you have to reapply for your job. Oh, wow. And uh, the access and the discussion, but that was heavily influenced by the community. Police leadership, uh, political leadership met with the communities, heard what their concerns were around violent crime increasing, police not be, are being detached from the community. Mm -hmm. And they went in and they had this process where when you're out in the streets and you're an officer 
and there might be a complaint. There's a process where everybody sits down, not to punish you, but to analyze what went wrong yeah. and what you can do to improve yeah. and to really begin to invest in that kind of a kind of a structure. And it's now probably one of the best examples of a reform-minded police agency that really was driven by community input and community change. Sustaining that with change leadership is not always easy, right. especially when there's this default. And this happens in, not in, in just about any system, education, health, housing, you name it in a community. You're going to default back to the things that were in the status quo. And yep. so maintaining that's going to be important. Yeah. I think some of the f uh, reform efforts, uh, whether it is uh, um, stop and frisk mm -hmm. uh, in terms of policing strategies, uh, excessive use of, uh, uh, of uh, police stops um, are backfiring. We thought those were innovative approaches. It's unfortunate that the efforts to really do community policing uh, became top-down as opposed to driven by community. Yeah. And there are a number of departments and a number of agencies in the country which have learned from that experience. The broken windows approach, which right. was originally intended to deal with minor issues before they become complex issues. And what happened was is it became over-policing in a lot of neighborhoods and a lot of communities. This is New York City. A New York City yeah. is a, a classic example. But people who sought to replicate it probably were more injurious to the process than New York City was originally, is, is that they overreacted and they over-policed. over, -policed. over And uh, you get this discussion with communities. Some communities feel like they're under-policed. Yeah. But I forget in our world, Johnny, who was that said that in, uh, it may have uh, been you, but that in white communities, you know, it's perceived that they're under-policed. In black communities, it's perceived that they're over-policed. Mm -hmm. Wow. You know, in terms of the what what takes place, but I think again, what what I'm excited about Act Now is that we're creating these environments for a dialogue. Now we've just begun the process, yeah. But yeah. With the dialogue we believe is going to produce those conversations that get us the policing that the whole community wants and needs. Yeah. Now yeah. I, I would add to that, and Jim is you know as I tell him all the time, he's always right, and he's certainly right there. <laughs> <laughs> But there's another piece to this, and listening carefully to Jim, you hear, you know, the important aspects of the incidents, the transactional um, engagement of police and citizen, um, and these are all important. But there's also a a a, a uh, institutional and cultural aspect of policing as well, and it's on both sides of the ledger. That is, there is that framework within the community itself that is that is institutional and cultural, but it's also in the fabric of, of policing and understanding what those underlying narratives and values are within communities right. and within the policing uh, profession are important for each side to understand. That's where dialogue is so important. Yeah. But again, dialogue is not enough. and it, uh, We would be remiss if we don't make it clear that Act Now is more than a one-step process. Listening and learning is the first of a five-step process. You know, you, know, you, 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 you organize uh, you know, within communities. You build the People's Commission framework. You listen and learn. And, and that's where that deliberation comes in. And then the community, 
decides. What have we learned from this conversation? What decisions should we make about the change that's needed? Um, And then you act on what you've decided. You test it. Um, The dialogue is ongoing for sure. And then there's an evaluation process, and that's ongoing as well. You're constantly uh, looking at what you've done, what you've decided to do. Did it work or did it not? But bringing people together, having them dialogue, having them to, to pinpoint what the challenges and opportunities are, make collective decisions together, put them into action, evaluate them. We think those are the steps that are so necessary to give us a chance at the type of change we're all looking for. And I think, too, there's it, oftentimes we think of police transformation reform or community transformation reform as one size fits all. Right. And the fact is that these communities are different. I was often struck when I attended meetings of the International Association of Chiefs of Police. They actually had a division. I mean, I'm dealing in Martin County, Kentucky, where we literally sent teams up into the hills and hollers of that community to listen to people's concerns and discovered that the public housing, which is very prevalent and substance use is extremely prevalent in that community, that they had to check the box. That if you if you were an addict, you couldn't get into public housing. Or if you had a drug history, you couldn't get into public housing. Oh, wow. And we discovered that in that process, and the community's engaging that to change it. On the other extreme model of this is a community I worked with in the past. And actually, there's an association of chiefs of police of resort areas, and especially ski areas. The policing issues in those resort areas where you have a, a significant amount of tourists, yeah. drug use, and such, their strategies and the culture of that environment is very different and requires them to think about how they're going to police so that it doesn't undermine their economic base, it doesn't undermine access to services, a whole range of things. Those have... It's sort of, uh, I think I'm using this appropriately, they're very existential, (laughs) is is that with the community, what that community is feeling and experiencing is it requires this action, this dialogue, this understanding, and to really peel back as... um, you know, from our world, John, etymologically, I've got to break that community apart yeah. and to exegete the community yeah. so that I really truly understand it. And we're hoping that we can help facilitate that process with the diversity of the sites that we're looking at and learn from it. So in Oklahoma City, I'm, I'm sure much like Atlanta, but since this is one of these pilot sites, we're a community of communities. Mm-hmm. Like it's mm-hmm. it's varied. Right. Um who then, and I think I know the answer, but who then will be required to be flexible? Maybe I should say, who, who needs to be most flexible? <laughs> is, it, is it the different communities as we have to have patience for a, a, a police department that is trying to be all things to all people? Or is it the police department who has to recognize that no two communities are alike? Yes, Okay. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's, I, I was exactly. afraid that was going to be the answer. Yeah, yeah. and the political leadership yeah. as well. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that people who run for office, uh, part of their assessment is what is my, what what does the voting base look like, and what is it? How do I respond to it from Hispanic to Asian to black to white, and that they're they're trying to respond to that. 
But a service agency, we should demand that of them, Mm. (laughs) that the response to these communities may not be uniform, you know, and, um, you know, it's, you know, for two years I rode with our gang unit when I was doing gang work and, and I discovered very quickly that the way we communicated and how we communicated to certain populations, um, differed across a a very demographically diverse community, black, Hispanic, and increasingly Asian American, um, that, uh, there are certain things you just have to think through and be sensitive. I mean, I think it's a matter of the heart as well as it is in terms of skills. And cultivating the, and building this culture of empathy is to try to walk in somebody else's shoes to understand where they live and where they come from. Yeah. Um, that's a, a critical component, I think, of the new policing and of new government uh, if our democracy is to thrive. I agree with you. And please forgive me, sometimes I can be the cynical person, but sometimes it, it feels like that the the greatest opponent to a flexible and responsive and empathetic uh, effort that will be different across communities and uh, across ethnicities, let's say, I feel like the group that sometimes is most resistant to that is the group that's going to double up their fist and say, no, the law is the law. Mm-hmm. And I find those folks in churches. Mm-hmm. How do we how do we convince church folks who are not all I don't want to paint with too broad a brush but how do we convince church folks many of whom are oriented to the law as in sort of a singular sort of thing how do we get them to soften so that they can be a part of the process as opposed to the obstacles that we have to work around Well um Coming from... <laughs> He's as cynical as I am. So I, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, actually, the thing is that I've sort of, after these many years of walking this journey in a, from a faith perspective, is that um, I'm going to lift up the heart of the gospel I believe in. Right. And um, the rest of it can take a hike. Um, is that I can't... I'm not going to fix the structure. I'm, my training academically is in church history. And when I look at the history of the church, how they've responded to these issues at various times, it's taken innovators, it's taken people of courage to move outside the box that has been created to protect the faith. And more often than not, in fact, one scholar says doctrine and and organizational structure in church is that which the church created in defense of to protect its ideology or to protect its structure. And so we've always been reactionary. And I think the change agents in the history of the church have been people who said, no, it is to proclaim what is, and I don't care what religious tradition you come from, uh, is to proclaim the meaning of that tradition and to drive that. And for me, it's it's about uh, taking that message regardless of what the structures may say. Right. And it will take courage, it will take boldness, and uh, there will be people that will lose positions, there will be people that lose income uh, with that boldness, but if at least out of the context of those who shake their fists in the face, I'm going to defend the law and I want the law and the institution, they're worshiping the wrong idols, yeah. you know, and they've made that the idol, yeah. and uh, as opposed to uh, service. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and man wasn't made for the law, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> the law was made for, for us. That's right. And, you know, we, 
we can't over-romanticize either, you know? Mm. We're not going to love our way into the type of communities we want. But love is certainly an essential element. There's a certain pragmatic side of this. And, you know, it, it's, it's how we, once again, communicate with each other. Too much of what we think and understand um, is, you know, admittedly spoon-fed to us uh, in many different ways, um, whether it's through the various forms of media and sometimes even in the church. We, you know, we have to admit that, it seems to me. And so the real question is, and it gets back to this communion together, communicating together, talking uh, to one another, empathizing with one another. We've got to figure that out. Yeah. And over the last several decades, we've done just the opposite. Right. You know, we've you know, our urban churches are populated by suburban people. Yeah. You know, who left the urban core, moved out, um, and many churches now have built their 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 edifices outside of the urban core. But we've moved away from each other. We have to find ways. Uh, you know, to move together. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. I mean, I was struck by the fact that uh, in Nashville, I took the pastor of the Nashville church that we were working with. We went into the office of the city manager and the city planner. And he asked, we asked questions about the growth and the changes within the city. And finally, the city planner looked at this pastor and said, you know, I've been in this job for 15 years, and you're the first pastor that sat across that desk and asked me these questions. Wow. Is to better understand what the city is about, what the context is, what that environment is. And the other thing we did, actually, we took the church staff on a walking tour of the city. We identified nine churches in the heart of Nashville that are no longer churches. Wow. There are other social service agencies, there are office buildings, there are a whole range of things. But essentially, it was a, a message that they had left. And the, the fact is, from an incarnational, etymological kind of approach, it has, you have to create a faithful presence yeah. in those places. And it was a commentary on what Johnny just said. We've abandoned. We've yep. left. Yep. Either out of fear, out of bias a whole range of activities. Yep. It seems like as we retreated from bodies and into souls, we retreated from cities mm. outside of cities and and built in yeah. areas that were just yeah. safer, quote unquote. Yeah. Exactly. I am wondering how people who are listening to us and are brand new to this conversation but now uh their curiosity peaked. How where would you tell people to go sniff around what books, what voices would you recommend for people who want to get farther into this? I'm talking about you, Jeremy Winty. He's going to get all into this. I know he will. <laughs> well, um, you know, I tell you, I think uh, at least for me in the uh, uh, last, I mean, 10, 15, 20 years, whatever it's been, uh, where I've engaged and thought through this as a historian, um, as a community organizer, um understanding my history, my own bias, um, and how I've participated in systems that have continued to uh, put my heel on the backs of people that 
uh, I really said that I love and I care about, but not fully realizing it. I mean, reading Isabel Workerson's book, Cast, uh, mm-hmm. was an important book to understand. Uh, Clint Smith's new book uh, that deals with a, a history of, of a, a reckoning of our own racism and uh, what, uh, you know, you can go to Monticello and you can get two people to take you through Jefferson's place and you can get the white version, you can get the black version. And the slave version is a harsh reality that this was a slave owner who traded people. He may have written our Declaration of Independence, but he also was a slave trader. Yeah. And um, you cannot ignore that part of who we are. And I think that coming, that coming to terms with that has, at least for me, made me aware and more conscious that um, oftentimes I'm, I may come across as trying to be a helper when I'm really on this journey with them to understand yeah. And to uh, uh, to be a part of the transformation that we co-create uh, in this process, and um, I think uh, you know I'm a the single most important book I've read in the last twenty years was James Davison's Hunter book uh, to change the world, which is he talks about changing culture, and when he talks about that, it's for those who are of faith. To create a faithful presence, but it's got to be a search for authenticity in that faith and beautiful. to show up in that context. That's beautiful. Hmm. Johnny, what would you recommend? You know, a, a thought comes to mind first of all, John, and it is, it picks up on what Jim said about our history. And that thought is, we are what we are today because of what happened yesterday. Right. And unless we have the necessary confrontation with yesterday, our tomorrows will forever be the same. Mm. And, you know, we we have to come to grips with our history. Um, You know, there's a lot of talk about Toni Morrison's books right now that come to mind. And the the idea that you advance such a book from public schools. Um, There's... There are few American authors today who can rival, you know, the kind of, of, of writing and storytelling and empathic, you know, um, communicating of the lived experience of, of, you know, the least of these. You know, and I, I, rather than running away from books like that, we should, we, we should run to them. Yeah. Exactly. Our beloved is yes. just a powerful work. Yes. And for somebody to suggest that that should not be in the curriculum, you know, mm-hmm. you know I mean, this, this uh, well, I'll, I'll call it for what it is. I mean, this whole reaction to critical race theory is just intellectually, socially, and morally absurd. Yes. You know, and um, it's, uh, it's time that we take a stand on that kind of thing. Yeah. And, um, you know, Read what you want. I mean, <laughs> read what you want, but uh, don't bring your biases into this, especially in this culture and this society where we claim the First Amendment to be such an important right. platform for our civil liberties. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, we like to end every podcast uh, with two things. We end with hope and then also some silliness. But first, uh, <laughs> hope. Um, where do you see hope right now? And we'll start with uh, Johnny. 
well, you know, the obvious answer, because it's true, is in those who come behind us. You know, um, I, I, I have, you know, not young children, but, um, you know, young adult children. And, you know, the world that, 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 that we're leaving them is, is not the best world. Um, but the hope that they bring, um, the imagination that we bring, we owe it to them to be able to express and realize those aspirations. And, you know, as we move from one city to the next and we see young people, you know, I think, you know, we can survive this and have hope in their dreams and their commitments to those dreams. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the U.S. government sponsored a national longitudinal survey of youth that uh, in terms of what keeps them off, away from alcohol, drugs, teenage pregnancy, crime, violence. And one of the conclusions that came out of this longitudinal study, what they call the five resiliencies, kids who have skills, kids who have a locus of control, they have a voice in creating something, um, they have significant adults in their lives. But one of the most important pieces was hope. Something which pulls them into the future. They can identify. I remember dealing with a young 11-year-old girl we found in a crack house when I was working in Wichita. And uh, she saw me two years later after we rescued her from there. Her grandmother was shot and killed in a drive-by shooting. We put her in a safe house. And I saw her two years later. And she looked at me and she said, Mr. Koppel, I'm going to be a teacher. Hmm. And I said, I bet you are. And she is today. <laughs> you know, is that something that pulls us into the future? And I believe there is within the human spirit that which causes us to get up in the morning and go, I'm going into the future. And I'm going to participate in shaping that future. And uh, because as a historian, building on what Johnny said, those who have gone before us, they didn't give up, they kept moving forward. And I believe that's where we are now. We have a decision to make, choices to make. I'm heavily influenced by the theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, where he talks about decision. We're making decisions. And I think we're at a critical point. And I am, too, optimistic. When I look at the youth that we're meeting in this work, um, you know, they're not giving up. Sounds Wesleyan to me. Yeah, that's right. Optimism of the Wesleyan faith. Man, just expanding imaginations left and right. Yeah, I love it. the best. Love it. Now, there's a website before we get to the Salinas, the the Act Now website. Actnowforus.org. Actnowforus, F-O-R-U-S, dot org. And I I find it to be a great um, overview, an introduction to to this conversation. So, actnowforus.org, if you'd like to at least dip your toe into that water. And without further ado, Zach. Whew, wow. Yeah. Everybody's favorite segment, rapid fire questions. We, you know, this was sort of an impromptu thing. We didn't know we'd be doing this podcast yeah, this today with serendipitous uh, with the, yes, with these fine gentlemen. Uh, so well, how we end, we do rapid fire questions. Uh-oh. We have not prepared you in any way for no, these. No, you haven't. No. <laughs> so, um, the questions can be normal or ridiculous. Um, right, and right. Uh, as always, age before beauty, John, mm. it is your turn. You get to go first. The last song that you listen to of your own volition. Like it's in your recorder, it's in your car or whatever, but you said, I want to hear this song. What was that song? 
I am not good at remembering titles, but it's the new Adele song. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay, very good. Gee whiz. You know, I'm a Marvin Gaye guy, and his, his music stays in my mind. Oh, I'm telling you. You know, and particularly at this time. So what's going on? Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Very good. It's yeah. a great one. Uh, what's the best movie that you've watched this year? Yikes. I'm not a movie watcher. Uh-oh. So, you know, to spend an hour and a half, two hours watching a movie, I can get through a, several chapters of a book. <laughs> All right. <laughs> best book you've read this year. Oh, ah, so I did that to myself. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> uh, Goodness. That kids is called a pivot. That's right. That's right. That's great. That's well done. And I don't don't know why I'm drawing a blank. As many books as I have in my bag right now. Um, Come back to me. All right. I'm drawing a blank. Well, best movie, or it's actually a TV series. I loved Schitt's Creek. Oh, (laughs) yes. Oh, my gosh. Big face. Yeah, I was late coming to it, and I binged watched the thing. Yeah. Uh, But that was fun. And I'm reading right now the Indigenous People's New Testament. Okay. A translation written from a Native American perspective. And it's just given an amazing insight uh, into the scriptures. And so that's I'm having fun reading that nice. right now. Yeah, it's awesome. Very good. Yeah, and I'm reading Mahmoud Mandami's book. Um, neither Settler nor um, nor Stranger or something like that. It's not quite. <laughs> That's great. But but they'll find it. It's a good book. Yeah. Gotcha. So now this is an interesting one because I know this man uh, sales okay. quite a bit. Oh, you're, oh, you're hitting. Yeah, him with this I'm, I'm going to hit him with this one. So typically, we ask people if you had a boat, what would you name it? And it was a, you know, it'd be a meaningful name, somehow representative of you or what you want to be you. But you have a boat. I had a boat. Oh, and, had a boat. But I've named this. I've had. I've had five boats in my life. And you sank them all? No. <laughs> <laughs> I've been about sunk on those boats. Uh, but uh, two of the boats I named them Seeker. Oh, very I cool. Like Seeker. Seeker. That's a good one. All right, Johnny. If you had a big boat. What or would small you? One. A small one too. Oh, it could be yeah, a boat. A Just if you had a know. boat, big well, enough to have a name yeah, painted on it, then right? I would name a raft. Honestly, would you paint a name on a raft? I would. I would. <laughs> and, and by the way, me. Jim is available. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's funny because it just sounds so arrogant. But I would name it Johnny Mac. Oh, yeah. hey, honestly, that's, right. a, that's, that's a pretty pretty great name. name. <laughs> and I would spell it J O N Y M A K. Ooh, I like that. <laughs> This is way cooler than that is, I like come that, up yeah. with. Man. Um, I'm going to preface this one. Uh, the The question is, what is something that really weirds you out? And I thought about this question the other day because I was in a drive through line late at night, Taco Bell, and it weirds me out if you like like touch hands with the person. <laughs> like we were holding hands at one point while we were handing out a drink, and it it was intimate and weird, and I hated it. So, what is something that just really weirds you out? Ooh. I can tell you very quickly, people who stand on moving walkways. Oh, yes. Oh, man. That's a good one, Jim. Like you're just underutilizing yes. this thing. <laughs> That's a good one. I can't top and that. The world is wrong with those yes, people. I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just out for a leisurely <laughs> stroll. This is not what we're doing yeah. here, out folks. Out for a leisurely stand. Yeah. <laughs> it's not the most boring amusement park in the history yeah, of the world. That's right. It sucks. <laughs> the means of transportation. <laughs> Oh, Johnny, do you have anything? Um, oh, goodness. 
I don't have anything. Um, <laughs> also, a pretty easygoing guy too. Yeah, nothing you? You know, I tell Jim all the time, I'm easy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> See, John just picked it up. <laughs> <laughs> I've been Seems you. like it. Yeah, that's great. So I would be weirded out too by the whole. It was. It was a lot. It was. Felt like the I strange to touching thing. After <laughs> oh, that's weird too. Okay, now I have one. It was strange. Yeah, I'm telling you. <laughs> that's great. Okay, so uh, you're going for a, a night out with your significant other to your favorite restaurant. What kind of food is it? What's your favorite restaurant? Wherever you might find yourself. Oh my, I love East Indian food. Oh yeah, I really, really love East. Almost any, and I like Sri Lankan food more than East Indian. It's a little more spicy. So if you've never tried, if you like spicy and you like East Indian, then do Sri Lankan. Just fantastic. Okay, that's good. That's a good tip yeah. right there. Well, uh, since we have moved to Utah, uh, our favorite place is a place called Silver Fork Lodge up in the mountains, and we both get grilled cheese with bacon. Oh, yeah. it's really thick. Oh, I just love grilled cheese so much. <laughs> Sounds really good. I know that does sound nice. Are we going there after this? Uh, we can't. Now, see, Johnny's a vegetarian. Yeah. So uh, yeah. they're asking me for recommendations, and I'm I'm always having to check myself. Like, yeah. Because yeah. I want to send them to Clark's crew. Oh yeah, it's not really veggie friendly. No, it's, it's not veggie friendly. Well, they have I a mean, they have veggie size. plate. They have sides. Yeah, yeah. Like but you know, in today's world, it's easy to be a veggie and really get good food. Yeah. Except if you come to OKC. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We did have some struggles at lunch today. We had some struggles. <laughs> yes. Did you send them to Loaded Bowl? No, we went. Oh, that's true. We would have. Yeah, we should have done something like that. But we went to, to Nick's and, you know, they have great, oh. great burgers. And I, it was at least three times that somebody said, okay, then I'll have this. And the poor guy kept coming back saying, we don't oh, have no. that. Yeah. Supply chain issues. Mm, I felt terrible for him. Oh, my But Clark's Q. Clark's Crew Barbecue is an award-winning uh, barbecue place. Is that your best barbecue in town? Well, I mean, it it would be in the top five because, I mean, literally a guy won a competition in an open restaurant. Mm. So that's just right down the road here, and, and Zach and I have enjoyed that more than once. Yeah, well, more than once. Uh, another little bit of an explainer question. What is something that makes you irrationally mad? One of mine is uh, when... I am pulling laundry out of the dryer and I don't have a basket and I just sort of, you know, grab it with both hands and the sock falls off and <laughs> dip down to get it and then another sock falls off and you just get angry and you want to swear. What is there something like that that just sort of makes you angry? Yeah. People standing on moving walk. <laughs> Weirds you out, makes you angry. That's pretty good. It's a roller coaster. <laughs> Jim walks straight off the walkway to a therapist. Like you must decompress. I love that. I, yeah. What I struggle with, Zach, is mediocrity. Mm. I, I, you know, um, and I don't mean what I mean by that is people who won't go the extra mile. I mean, you know. Yeah. You know, the get by mentality just yeah. irks me to death. Yeah. I'm not sure why you're hanging out with John. But, uh, <laughs> okay. But whatever. <laughs> okay. My last one. Unless yeah, you have your one. last one, then I'll do one after Okay. That, so. All right. My favorite question is, and it's again, it's a music question. Um, it's almost become cliche. There's the, the, the rock artist who gets really hyped up, last song in the concert, and he gets so hyped up that he just smashes his guitar and walks off the stage. What is the song 
that is most likely, maybe you would never be a guitar smasher. I'm not sure if I would either. But what is the song that is most likely to get you to that point where you could smash guitar and happily walk off the stage? Biggest hype song. Hype song? Yeah, get you hyped. Wow. Yeah. This might be our toughest question that we ever asked. Yeah. It takes the longest. Yeah. It would be for me a Bruce Springsteen song. Mm. All right. Mm-hmm. I am a big Bruce, Steen, Bruce Springsteen fan. The boss. Yeah. Anyone in particular? Hey. Of songs? Well, I love the album, The Rising. Mm hmm. Uh, and um, Wild Horses yeah. uh, is a really uh, great yeah. album as well. It's a good one. It would be something from that. Gee whiz. You're asking all the hard questions. Yeah, man. <laughs> for Zach, it's Love in Any Language by Sandy Patty, which that's, is weird, that's but not that's true. for one. That's not true at all. You know? It's so strange. I can't no. believe he said that. No, no, no. no. It's Testify to Love by Avalon. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that sorry, Johnny. That's funny. That's funny. Uh-huh. <laughs> Shit, Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm a Sandy Patty fan, too. <laughs> um, <laughs> You wouldn't think so, but it's incredible. Oh, my gosh. That, that's, have, a, that's a revelation that now makes me a little nervous. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have one, Chad. I'm sorry. That's okay, buddy. Right. That's okay. I'm going for a hat trick here. All right. Here it is. Um, hat trick. Explainer questions? What you mean? No, well, I think I know the answer oh, okay. uh, for one of these. Um, where is the worst place where you could get stuck? Oh, hit me with it, man! You know what? You know what's gonna be. I know exactly what it's gonna be. Absolutely, you know it is. <laughs> Just waiting, and a real long one. At yeah. last. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Worst place gets stuck. Wow, I think um, my. I guess my. Uh, for me, the worst place to get stuck. Is in a window seat in the back of a plane. Oh man, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. That's tough. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I can do that. M- mine's travel related too, and that's um, uh, in traffic on the way to the airport. Mm. Yeah, yeah. To, I mean, there's nothing worse. Yeah, when you travel a lot, as Jim does, yeah. getting stuck in traffic and you you know you're. You're, you're you're late. Yeah, <laughs> get it. My my answer was going to be getting stuck in service when the preacher preaches to him. Okay, so, happens all often. Right. <laughs> Mine's the DMV. Well, that makes more <laughs> sense. DMV. Oh man, I have to. Yeah, ours is ours is relatively rough around here. Uh, it just takes a long time to do anything. Yep, it's tough. Yeah. It's well, on that really chipper note. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, we're going to end the podcast here. So, Jim, Johnny, thank you so much for joining us. Yep. You guys are great. This was yeah, this this is fun. Great. Yeah. A lot of fun. We'll do it. Now, again. Jim has his own podcast, so I wonder if we can like double use this audio or, or something like that. Yeah, and... I think that's called cross pollination. Cross pollination. Right. Hey, that's quick. There you go. I'm impressed. You're, you're welcome. Yeah, if you sent to me, I'll put it up on ours. Be great. Be Sounds great. Good. Good to see you guys. Good to see you. Talk to you soon. Thank you.